Before we begin today's program, I wanted to update you on the progress of the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. The good news is the program continues to grow. It has surpassed 17,000 monthly downloads. The fundraising goals have been modest, and they have been met with the support of around 75 listeners in total. But even though the goals are modest, the effects of these 75 people have been huge. Those 75 listeners supporting the show out of the 17,000 monthly downloads have assured the program a solid future. But even if just another 20 or 30 people who listened regularly were to pledge a dollar per episode, it would have a huge effect on the program's sustainability and on how ambitious it can be going forward. So take a moment and check out the Patreon campaign at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash between the covers. And a hearty thank you goes out to recent supporters, Jory, Brian, Mark, Amber, and C.A., Anne, a poet in Santa Fe, Carolyn, a poet in Portland, Amanda, a writer in New York, Alyssa, a writer in Texas, Heidi, an oboist, counselor, and writer, Susan, a computer scientist and aspiring writer, National, an art gallery and specialty shop here in Portland, Monica, a landscape architect and writer, and Ed, a physicist and chef in Boulder, Colorado. Thanks to all, and check out the supporter page at davidnaman.com slash patrons in order to explore the websites of all these interesting people. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet Soma Sharif. Sharif holds degrees from New York University and from the University of California, Berkeley, where she studied and taught with June Jordan's Poetry for the People. Her poetry has appeared in Granta, The New Republic, The Kenyan Review, Jubilat, and Poetry, among others, and she's the recipient of the Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award and fellowships from the Poetry Foundation and National Endowment for the Arts. A former Wallace Stegner Fellow, Solma Sharif is currently a Jones Lecturer at Stanford University and is here today to talk about perhaps the most anticipated debut poetry collection of the year and a finalist for this year's National Book Award in Poetry, entitled Look and Out from Grey Wolf Press. Publishers Weekly in its starred review says Sharif defies power, silence, and categorization in form, content, and execution, Sharif's debut is arguably the most noteworthy book of poetry yet about recent U.S.-led wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, and the greater Middle East. Eileen Miles says Sharif throws us a brilliant, even perfect book of poems. Natalie Diaz in the New York Times says Sharif shows us that the diameter of a word is often as devastating as the diameter of a bomb. And Yusef Komenyaka says Soma Sharif's look confronts an empirical system of language and its effect on family and citizen, near and far-reaching, social and philosophical, by unearthing, decoding, and reconstructing half-hidden symbols of power built into nomenclature, as well as everyday expression, the poet serves truth, sometimes delicately, other times brutally. Look, line by line, extends toward prophecy and harmony." Welcome to Between the Covers, Solma Sharif. Thank you so much for having me, David. It's a pleasure. In your book, Look, it is an engagement with another book, the Dictionary yeah. of Military and Associated Terms. So why don't we start with telling us what the dictionary is and, and in what relationship you see it to the, to the poems of Look? Sure. Um, 
Um, the U.S. Department of Defense has its own dictionary, which is meant to supplement standard English dictionaries. So they take words that we use regularly and add a, a war-specific definition or redef redefinition to the word. So, for example, the title of the book is Look, which the Department of Defense has, um, I want to say, translated to mean in mine warfare, the period during which a mine circuit is receptive of an influence. And I've always found state-sponsored language to be um, chilling and incredibly dangerous and known it to be where violence against bodies is premeditated. So I've wanted to kind of, as a poet, um, intervene there. And then I saw that there was actually a whole book devoted to just that that I could focus on in these poems. So I use the terms within the poems, often with small caps, to kind of um, use them as little markers of violence where we might not otherwise see violence happening. Um, I also use them as, as my own and try to offer my own poetic uh, definitions of the terms or the truth as I, as I see it in warfare. And what was your first encounter with the dictionary? And, and when you had that encounter... Did you know that you were going to then embark on a book-length project around it, or was this something that evolved piece by piece? Right. Um, the first time I, I saw it was in late 2006, early 2007, and I had been collaborating with a visual artist friend of mine who was doing these prints of various war photos, and she wanted me to caption the war photos. Um, with military euphemism, basically. So I could think of a few off the top of my head, but eventually, you know, like occupation, operation, security sweep. But I ran out of such terms, and so I Googled it, and I saw that there was a whole public document. Um, and you're right to ask if I knew, and I didn't I didn't know, actually, that it was going to be a book-length thing. I, I saw the book, the dictionary, and it's huge, and I just kept thinking, what's the one poem that I'm going to write addressing this dictionary? Um, and it wasn't until another year later that I realized, oh, it could be a whole book. Um, and so I started first really just trying to rewrite the dictionary. So I, I took terms and wrote my own definitions, and I wrote hundreds, if not you know, thousands of those, and then um, realized that that was totally insufficient. And that what needed to happen was that the, the terms were taken out of their war-exclusive context, or at least war as we expect to understand it context, and placed into various daily poems of American, of American life for them to really be um, spoken back to in any meaningful way. Th that reminds me of something that you've said about language and war. Um, you said before that language like other democratic things, freedom of assembly, habeas corpus, is among the first casualties of war, that the maiming and obliteration of language preempts and attempts to excuse the maiming and obliteration of bodies. And I was wondering if that's what you're aiming at by providing the definition of look, which I think is the only place in the book where you provide a definition of the military terms, um, because it's so far from the common usage of the word and actually obscures the possibility of looking but also that the phrase receptive to an influence feels so detached and clinical when it and doesn't in any way hint at the horror that it's referring to the to the weight of a human body on on a bomb that's right. going to detonate. Absolutely. Um, it is. I use one more definition in there, but in general, um, in, in a poem called Breakup, it's the only poem where I use a definition within within the work. But in general, I didn't. It, didn't, it doesn't really matter to me, actually, what the words mean, according to the Department of Defense. To have one example of what they do to language, look, um, and what they do to a human body, call it an influence, I thought was, was sufficient. Otherwise, I'm much more interested in the words as we understand them, um, we being, you know, civilians, um, and we being the actual creators and caretakers of a, of a living language. Um, so that I just wanted to have the words and our own associations with those words be in the book and know that there is a violence behind them that we, we might or might not be able to access um, upon seeing those words. Like a word like 
uh, catalytic attack. You can kind of imagine, you know, it has the violence within it. Um, but a term like desired appreciation, it's still not entirely clear, you know, how the Department of Defense might mean or might use that. And I find it much more interesting to not know exactly and to start to second guess the language that we use and what might happen to the language that we use in the hands of the military, um, rather than know exactly what happens. It's interesting when you when you say that language is one of the first casualties of war. Mm-hmm. It made me think, well, what is the role of the poet? And it, it reminded me of a conversation I had with a prior guest, Elliot Weinberger, who talks mm-hmm. a lot about how in most other countries in the world, poets are looked to as public intellectuals, that even if right. someone's not reading a poet, they'll recognize their name and that they're often asked to be writing op-eds and engaging in the public sphere and in, in newspapers, whereas here that's reserved for journalists and, and not really a, a role for poets. Um, do you see that gap yourself? And I was wondering if you felt like there was an, uh, a need for the poet as public intellectual, or, um, or what role would you see as, as a way to defend this, this violence towards language? I do think there is a need for the poet as public intellectual. I mean, I think that there is a need for public intellectuals, period. And that that might be something that in general is not um, valued in the U.S. in the same way that it might in other countries. And when it comes to a poet itself, um, it would be our job um, to be, as Yusuf Komunyaka has said, I think he was quoting Auden, to be the caretakers of language and to make sure that language stays alive, um, thriving, democratic medium, and that it does not fall, um, or when it does at least fall, as it will over and over again, into the hands of power, there is at least some kind of intervention. Um, I'm thinking right now, actually, of the use of, you know, alt-right, for example, in the media. Right. This kind of rebranding that's been accepted wholesale, for the most part, by major media outlets is the kind of thing that I don't think a poet would, would let fly, you know, um, ideally. Or if, when I think of a poet as a public intellectual, that's exactly the kind of thing I, I see a poet kind of examining um, and intervening in. You talked when you were the blogger for the Kenyan Review about how happy you were that you were going to have poems appear in the in the Los Angeles Times in the newspaper, and that you felt like there was a natural marriage between poetry and the news. Can mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about that that um, sympathy that I you think, think they feel for each other? I think there's a natural maybe maybe a natural contention between them that is important and vital to have, namely that the news attempts a kind of objectivity, um, a kind of abstraction that a poem um, fails if it, if it attempts the same. So that we need to see our news um, and we need to see the lives around us as individual and living lives. And we need to look at them through eyes that are able to grieve and love, which are not um, how the news would, would want us to look at those those lives. And I think that the poet has a role in historicizing the contemporary moment and responding to the contemporary moment um, in a way that a historian would never be able to or a journalist would never be able to. And so we need to have all these things happening next to each other um, in order for there to be a real healthy and exciting conversation. Hmm. So looking for a juxtaposition uh, and a difference between the two. Yeah. Yes, yeah, unnecessary, maybe, maybe necessary, although I'm, I'm skeptical of journalism, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Solma Sharif about her collection of poems from Grey Wolf Press entitled Look. You, you've talked sometimes about how when you describe your poems as political or as documentary, that a common response you get is that, that this precludes aesthetic rigor, that something less than artful is occurring in your poems. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that and, and, and what response, if any, you have when you receive that, that to your um, description. Yeah, I mean, I think um, this, is, this, is, this goes back to the role of, you know, the, poet is, the, the role of poet as public intellectual um, and the, the political being the expressly public sphere, which I already don't uh, agree with because, of you know, I'm an inheritor of 
the personal is political, quote unquote. Um, and I do believe that. So um, when it comes to the, the political, I think that there is a strong um, inclination in the U.S. to leave that to expressly political spheres. And when we look at political in that way, I mean, that really only leaves the legislature and maybe courts of justice. Um, but I know that these um, institutions, while political, do not necessarily have our best public interest at in mind. Um, and so I think it's my role as a poet, again, to intervene there, or, or really my role as, a, as Rizzo said, um, when, when put on trial, my role as a citizen um, to do so. I, um, I'm trying to go back to your question, P political. The objections that are usually raised when somebody hears that a work is political is that it's going to be didactic, it's going to be moralizing, it's going to be bombastic, it's going to be propaganda. Um, and in the case of some of those terms, such as didactic, um, or even moralizing, I tend to push back to be like, well, what is it about those things that's not good? What is it, what is it about those things that we don't want to have happen? Um, and I think that our distaste for didactic poetry, our distaste for the didactic moment in the U.S. is actually a ve very dangerous one. Um, I think we are shamed for not knowing something, and I think that we are expected to know um, I think we are seeing the conclusion of uh, being shamed for not knowing something and wanting um, even our the leader of our nation to not know more than we do. We want to identify maybe with the leader of our nation. Um, instead, we see we see knowledge as organized in a hierarchical fashion, so that if you know um, you were more worthy and you were higher on the on the the um, hierarchy than someone who does not know. I see knowledge as kind of horizontally um, organized, and there are various knowledges that we all have, and that we all have, uh, we all don't know, actually. There's less that we know, and that we should be, and I am, as an individual, open to learning from a poet, from a poem, from an individual conversation. Um, and so that's, for example, that's one criticism against political poetry that I, I don't quite, I try to push back on. Moralizing, too. I mean, I think um, there, I believe that all, all language and all, all, all choices behind language are, are an ethical choice, a moral choice by extension. So um, what is it that we mean by those, by those criticisms? Uh, so it kind of depends on what objections people are raising when it comes to political poetry. Um, that my, you know, I'll, I'll adjust my response. Uh, yeah. In accordance. Maybe this would be a good time for people to hear the, the title poem. Look. Sure. I'd love to read it. Look. It matters what you call a thing. Exquisite. A lover called me exquisite. Whereas, well, if I were from your culture living in this country, said the man outside the 2004 Republican National Convention. I would put up with that for this country. Whereas I felt the need to clarify, you would put up with torture, you mean, and he proclaimed yes. Whereas what is your life? Whereas years after they looked down from their jets and declare my mother's Abaddon block probably destroyed, we walked by the villas, the faces of buildings torn off into dioramas, and recorded it on a handheld camcorder. Whereas it could take as long as 16 seconds between the trigger pulled in Las Vegas and the Hellfire missile landing in Mazar Sharif, after which they will ask, did we hit a child? No, a dog, they will answer themselves. Whereas the federal judge at the sentencing hearing said, I want to make sure I pronounce the defendant's name correctly. Whereas this lover would pronounce my name and call me exquisite and lay the floor lamp across the floor, softening even the light. Whereas the lover made my heat rise Rise so that if heat sensors were trained on me, they could read my thermal shadow through the roof and through the wardrobe. Whereas, it's not like seeing a dead body walking to the grocery store here. It's not like that. It's a rock, you know? It's a rock. It's kind of like acceptable to see that there and not. It was kind of like seeing a dead dog or a dead cat lying. Whereas, I thought if you would look at my exquisite face or my father's, he would reconsider. Whereas, you mean I should be disappeared because of my family name? 
And he answered, yes, that's exactly what I mean, adding that his wife helped draft the Patriot Act. Whereas the federal judge wanted to be sure he was pronouncing the defendant's name correctly and said he had read all the exhibits, which included the letter I wrote to cast the defendant in a loving light. Whereas today we celebrate things like his transfer to a detention center closer to home. Whereas his son has moved across the country. Whereas I made nothing happen. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow for what is your life. It is even a thermal shadow. It appears so little and then vanishes from the screen. Whereas I cannot control my own heat and it could take as long as 16 seconds between the trigger the Hellfire missile, and a dog, they will answer themselves, whereas a dog, they will say. Now, therefore, let it matter what we call a thing. Let it be the exquisite face for at least 16 seconds. Let me look at you. Let me look at you in a light that takes years to get here. We've been listening to Soma Sharif read from her debut collection, Look. Let it matter what we call a thing, I think, could be seen as sort of an ethos through the entire collection. And in reading the collection, it made me think a lot about how we've been at war for 15 years and there's no consequential anti-war movement that has entered the cultural narrative. And this idea of, of how little it takes for us to look away. And for instance, I was thinking... You know, if Saudi Arabia drops a bomb on a Yemeni funeral and we are part of the coalition and we funded them and we supplied them the bombs, still all it takes for people to turn away is for a newspaper to say a Saudi-led coalition drops a bomb at a funeral without mentioning mm -hmm. all the ways we're involved. Or I think of, say, the President Obama's kill list with his assurance that he approves every name on it before they're killed. And... All the people well, now, who and now Trump will be able to <laughs> right, right. But if we but if we think that Obama is a good person, and yeah. and we seem to generally be allergic to complex narratives, mm -hmm. um, if Obama is good, his kill list must be killing bad people, right. and that's all it seems to take for us not to push any further, not to look anymore. That's why I, I actually, when I think of Obama, or one of the things I said when uh, the 2012 election results were coming in, and I was eating dinner with colleagues and, and people were, were celebrating. Um, and not to, not, I didn't want to rain on anyone's parade or anything, but I did say that I think that Obama is one of the most dangerous presidents that we've had, um, in part because of that, that goodness, that trust that people uh, have, that, that liberals, that otherwise maybe, maybe critical people um, shut off their criticality in response to his actions, um, without really thinking about or realizing, well, one, that, you know, the, the necessary illegality of his actions, but also that he's setting a precedent for the next president to kind of come in and do the same things. Um, and that next president will not be an Obama. Right. Um, and so now we're, we're in it. <laughs> right. Unfortunately. And I mean, yeah. him adopting and expanding and normalizing all of the executive overreach of Bush probably right. must come from his own sense of feeling that he's good, that he right. can he can use this power, not that he's going to think about how, who's going to inherit it after him. Right. Absolutely. And that I don't think any uh, president have, has ever, maybe they have historically kind of relinquished any executive power that they've, <laughs> probably they've acquired not. or inherited. Yeah. Can, can you speak to the cover image? It's a blur, blurry, low-resolution image that I'm, I'm guessing is an image from a drone. Um, do you know? No, that's, yeah. Is that what it is? It's actually the first photograph ever taken. Um, oh, wow. And it's, it's by an inventor, uh, a French inventor named Nietz. Um, and it's a scene of rooftops outside of his window. And... Um, because of the documentary impulse of the book, you know, I, and because of its response to photography, I thought it would be uh, obvious to have uh, a, a photograph um, for the cover, but also one that is kind of illegible, one that requires that you kind of come closer to see what are you looking at. I didn't want a, a cover that, that gave everything, everything away, quote unquote, you know, that was directly explicitly war related. The title isn't either. 
But maybe once you open the book and you start looking at it, you go back to the cover and you think it's a drone. You think it's a drone screen or you think, right. you know, and all those other low resolution ways that we that we see um, in order to conduct military action. But, yeah, it's it's a really uh, strange image. It's the exposure had to have taken at least eight hours because it's the sun has moved across the image. So the buildings are being lit from kind of all sides. Um in a way that they wouldn't in real life. So this this tension between the real um, the realness of the image and its representation um, were kind of what I was interested in in framing my book within. You mentioned photography, and it it does feel like photography and film are in relationship mm-hmm. to this book uh, over and over again. Can can you um, can you unpack that a little bit more for us and what you're what you're looking at and what you find appealing about. Uh, photography and film in relationship to poetry. Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm a, a an image image based writer, um, and I'm obsessed with with sight and the ways we see. Um, so there's that. There's also the fact that I have a long elegy in there that is written for an uncle that was killed in the Iran Iraq War, and it's based largely on a thin uh, collection of photos that were on his body um, when he died. And so I was thinking of that, but I was also thinking um, of what is it about photographs and film, like what is it that allows a photograph or an image to be framed and, and reframed in any way that, that might be necessary? And what I mean by that is, you know, as, as the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan pick up, in 2001, 2002, 2003, you know, daily I, we're confronting these cover images of the New York Times of, like, Arab men, you know, on their knees in a living room with guns pointed at them, for example. And I realized at some point that I'm, I'm looking at those images and seeing uh, a father or my father even, you know, somebody who looks like family. And so I'm filled with fear for that, for that person but that those images are actually being used to communicate some kind of victory, right? Or some kind of, we're doing the work that we need to be doing. Um, And I wanted to find a way to, and I realized that really it's through the caption and the context that's given to those images that we are able to grieve those, those lives or really confront them as, as lives. Um, And I, I kind of see my book as, as that act of captioning in a lot of, in a lot of ways. That's interesting. You, you also mentioned this military term that made me think of film and cinema, uh, continuous strip imagery, continuous Mm -hmm. strip imagery made me think of film before digital film. Right. Right. Um, And also there was this way that you, you do a lot of, um, there's a lot of disparate elements in in look, letters, itemized lists, descriptions of photographs, dictionary terms, and news reports that are brought together that also, in a filmic sense, I would call it like a montage, like in the Eisenstein right. sense of montage. And I don't know if you had right. that in mind when you were when you were putting these t- next to each other. Absolutely. You did? I absolutely did. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for that. Um, well, let's let's have our listeners hear another poem. If you if you would be willing, I would I would love for them to hear desired appreciation. Sure, yeah. Desired appreciation. Until now, now that I've reached my thirties, all my muse's poetry has been harmless, American and diplomatic. A learned helplessness is what psychologists call it. My docile, desired state. I've been largely well behaved and gracious. I've learned the doctors learned of learned helplessness by shocking dogs. Eventually, we things give up. Am I grateful to be here? Someone eventually asks if I love this country. In between the helplessness, the agents, the nation must administer a bit of hope, must meet basic dietary needs, ensure by tube, by nose, by throat, by other orifice, must fist bump a janitor, must muss up some kid's hair and let him loose around the Oval Office, Click, click, could be cameras or the teeth of handcuffs closing to fix the arms overhead. There must be a doctor on hand to ensure the shoulders do not dislocate, and there must be Prince's raspberry beret. Click, click, 
could be Morse code tapped out against a coffin wall to the neighboring coffin. Outside my window, the snow lights cobalt for a bit at dusk, and I'm surprised every second of it. I had never seen the country like this. Somehow I can't say yes. This is a beautiful country. I have not cast my eyes over it before, that is, in this direction, is how John Brown put it when he looked out from the scaffold. I feel like I must muzzle myself, I told my psychiatrist. So you feel dangerous, she said. Yes. So you feel like a threat. Yes. Why was I so surprised to hear it? We've been listening to Solma Sharif read from her collection of poetry, Look. I I read that this poem was influenced by the Senate Intelligence Report on Torture and on a poem by Ovid. And Mm -hmm. is that true? Could you talk a little bit about some of the elements that came into this poem? Sure. Yeah. The opening lines um, until now, now that I've reached, well, I say 30s, but I think Ovid said 50s. Uh, the, um, all my muse of poetry has been harmless. The are taken from Ovid's, or at least a translation of Ovid's Ibis poem, which was, it's a, it's a kind of elaborate curse poem that he wrote while in exile. Um, and it's a kind of, uh, it's not a great poem, first of all, um, but it is really kind of wrenching, and it's uh, one that was written in the context of his exile poems, which for the most part are uh, really uh, full of pleading to be let back let back into to Rome, let back into the empire, um, a lot of just heartbreak over his exile, and... Uh, Whenever I read them, I kind of want to look away because they're they're a little pathetic um, and so heartbreaking. But the Ibis poem is the it's like where he has kind of funneled all of his his venom and his rage um, against you know whoever it is that had exiled him. Um, and the Senate torture report I also read and wanted to write a response to. Um, and at first it was way more directly, you know, there were a lot of lines and, and tactics and, and stuff lifted from the Senate torture report and put in the poem that eventually got worked out of it because I just couldn't justify the appearance, uh, the reappearance of the cruelty um, within the poem without it just being a spectacle. Hmm. And so I wanted to... And also there was a feeling as I was writing that, a feeling that felt was different. Um, 2014 felt different than even 2008, you know, Um, because 2014, there was so much more access to this information. So that my, I felt a kind of shift in my role as a poet, um, as a documentary poet, wasn't necessarily just to expose documents that otherwise would would not be accessed by the public, um, but was to kind of add to those documents and speak back to them and contextualize them in in a broader, in a broader way. So um, I didn't want to use too much of that uh, document in the end. So that was kind of what was happening in the background of my mind as I was writing it. Hmm. Well, there's a way in which this poem, Desired Appreciation, uh, suggests a move from a poetics of learned helplessness to one of, of being on the edge of, of power. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it feels like the poets that you, many of the poets you quote in the book are exemplars of this, like Muriel Rukeyser, who was surveilled mm-hmm. by the FBI and Lionel Rogama, the Nicaraguan poet shot by the state police. Obviously they're mm-hmm. poets who, um, f- found power in their work enough to be seen as threats. Um, mm-hmm. can, can you speak to what some of these poets you've you've referenced and look mean to you? Ruckheiser is a huge influence because uh, of, especially because of a poem um, that she wrote called The Book of the Dead, which is a documentary poem about uh, a mining disaster and a major labor dispute that happened in the 30s um, where miners were dying of silicosis. Um, and so she goes down, um, I believe, I'm pretty sure it was West Virginia, um, and interviews these miners and uh, writes a, a whole documentary poem. And it's kind of the first poem that I can think of where she, you know, the poet works as camera um, 
and and but she also allows herself into the poem in a way that we might not find in, in another uh, uh, in other documentary poets like someone like Reznikov. So she's a personal hero to me, also because she's a political figure that did not write. Um, you know, like socialist realist kind of work. She she wrote aesthetically rigorous and difficult, not to say socialist realist is not necessarily, but um, aesthetically rigorous and difficult work that, you know, um, people that wouldn't necessarily be successful at a rally, for example. Right. You know, there aren't poems that she could read and then people would kind of um, throw their fists in the air necessarily. Um, and so... Uh, She's a major influence. June Jordan is a major influence who has explicitly said that a poem is not sloganeering. But she also, she was a public intellectual, political figure, um, wrote for the progressive and for the nation regularly, for example. Rugama um, young, was young. He was 20, Sandinista poet when he was killed. Um, you know, as a child of Iranians, I have seen how books and literature and art can be seen um, as dangerous, as threats to state power. Um, and that's not something that I think we expect in the U.S., though so you're exactly right that Ruckheiser was surveilled by the FBI. Ginsburg was as well. Um, and and many, many other poets have been surveilled, so have been seen as a kind of, of threat. And so my impulse is actually to kind of figure out, well, what is that poem? What is that poem that... Um, would want to would need burning. What what is that poem that would need banning? And how do I how do I write that poem or get close to it mm. um, without letting go of my my lyrical rigor? That reminds me of something you said about poetry and activism. That you're interested in what activism can learn from poetry. That failure in activism is often a deficiency of lyricism. That social mm -hmm. quests for freedom have much to learn from freedom enacted on the page, and that this conversation should happen on the level of reading and not solely as it so often is on the level of intention. And I, I would love if you could elaborate on that a little, particularly what you mean by the level of reading versus the level of intention. Right. I think that um, we look for, in general, we look for political poems um, as poems with a certain kind of political content. And then when we see a poem with a certain kind of political context, content, we read it politically. Um, and then we, we uh, talk about all its failures, usually. This is usually how the conversation goes. Um, on the other hand, I think that we, should, we can and should be looking at all poems, period, through a political lens what a poem might be saying, um, what a poem's relationship to power is, uh, what kind of relationship to power it's modeling for us, what it sees as its role in the world right now at this moment, what it sees as its role in the world in the future. Um, those, those kinds of questions should be happening on the reading side and not just on the, the side of poets making their own decisions. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is also a kind of radicality that I'm more interested in because when we learn, when we learn to read things politically, when we learn to read a poem politically, well, then we can learn to read anything kind of politically, right? And that's, that's our great hope, really, is not that, you know, certain people step forward and provide us with a political vision, but that we are all empowered to look around at the world and see, well, what is, my, what is my vision and what is the world telling me politically and what is politically happening to me and to those around me in this moment? Um, and that's where I think um, people have a lot to learn um, from a poem hmm. rather than another kind of text, possibly, because of the way that a poem collapses time, because of the way that a poem can make the self permeable because of the way that the poem can really, um, it, you know, Gwendolyn Brooks talks about poetry as life distilled, you know, so how, how it can create a, an heightened sense of proximity to things that we otherwise see as totally distant and removed from ourselves and our reality at the moment. Um, I think those are really what we need um, as in an activist sense. Yeah. 
the way in which you interrogate these words in small caps from the from the military dictionary kind of um, troubling them and making us uncertain what their what their true meaning are um, you also are engaging in this book with erasure and I was curious about reaching Guantanamo, which is written as a series of redacted letters. Mm-hmm. I, did you write the full letters and then redact them into poems, doing an erasure on them, or did you write them with the gaps um, already there as you were writing? Um, yeah, that's a great... I mean, for the for the absolute most part, I wrote them with the gaps. I mean, in the, in the course of editing, some I had to add maybe a few gaps, or but mostly I just... I wrote them. I wrote them um, with the gaps in my in my head. So I still don't know. Like, there's a line that says, "Remember the line that went," and then there's you know just quotation marks and it's empty. Um, I never imagined what that line might be, and I think that 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 allowed me to experience the loss along with the reader, rather than if I had written the poem and crossed out words, it would be an act of of I mean, it's all an act of power on my part, but that would be a different kind of power on my part, you know, where I would really be mimicking the role of the state, which is like, I know what was said here, but you as a reader will not be able to access this. Um, I think it was more important that I stay in the not knowing myself. Can you speak to, you mentioned the role of the state, uh, the ways in which that could have been playing the role of the state. Can you speak to the practice of erasure in poetry in relationship to political erasure? Erasure in poetry is uh, an aesthetic tactic that's been around for for at least decades. And basically you take a text and um, you cross out words um, in the text and you kind of create a new poem based on that. So I'm thinking it's like Jen Bourbon's book, Nets, which is an erasure of Shakespeare's sonnet. Um or radios, which is an, an erasure of um, Paradise Lost, and the name of the poet is totally escaping me right now. Um, and it's something that really, I think, in the and at least the mid aughts, it just felt like many people were were doing it and experimenting with it. And you know, it's something you can just take anything you want and and erase it, and then um, make a new thing out of it. But for me, when I heard about it, and this is happening alongside, you know, WikiLeaks and, and alongside our increasing awareness of the um, role of the state censor, um, I was kind of just horrified that the, the political or the, the role of the state um, and how that is kind of being mimicked by the poet was not really being looked at um, or not looked at often enough. So... I see erasure as a kind of mimicking of state-sponsored erasure. Um, I see I see really all formal practices as a kind of mimicking of a of a kind of power. Um, and so for me, it's just I don't really I don't really use it or choose to mess with it unless I'm trying to point to um, personally, unless I'm trying to point to some kind of state-sponsored intervention hmm. that has prevented um, accessing a life. So it has a very specific role in your work? Yes. Yes. Well, let's um, read another poem. Um, okay. F- Force Visibility, by chance? Sure. Force Visibility. Everywhere we went, I went in pigtails no one could see. Ribbon curled by a scissor's sharp edge, the bumping our cars undertook when hitting those strips along the interstate meant to shake us awake. Everywhere we went, horses bucking their riders off, holstered pistols, or two Frenchies dancing in black and white in a torn-apart living room on the big screen, our polite cow faces lit softly by new wave cinema I will never get into, the soft whir of continuous strip imagery. What is fascism, a student asked me, and can you believe I couldn't remember the definition? The sonnet, I said. I could have said this. Our sanctioned tunis, my covert pigtails. Driving to the cinema, you were yelling. This is not yelling, you corrected in the car, a tiny amphitheater. I will resolve this, I thought, and through that resolution, I will be a stronger compatriot. This is fascism. Dinner party by dinner party, 
waltz by waltz, weddings, ringed by admirers, by old couples who will rise to touch each other publicly. In intertheater traffic, you were yelling, and beside us, briefly, a sheriff's retrofitted bus, full or empty, was impossible to see. We're listening to Solma Sharif read from her book of poetry, Look, from Grey Wolf Press. Probably the I, I, probably what I would consider the heart of the book is is your 31-page poem, Personal Effects, which is an analogy to your uncle who was killed, I believe, before you were born in the Iran-Iraq War. Um, and kind of like Force Visibility, which mentions cinema and, and has the term continuous strip imagery, um, we get this this engagement with the image from the beginning with the Sontag quote, like guns and cars, cameras are fantasy machines whose use is addictive. And then you open the poem with a contemplation of a photograph of your uncle um, and describe the poem as as an album, a photo album of sorts. Um, can you talk a little bit about how this poem came to be for you? Um, yeah, um, I get my uncle was a draftee in the Iran-Iraq War, and he was, was indeed killed before I was born, so state the obvious, I never met him. And um, there was a very slim photo album on him that um, I, I, I had and I had scanned copies of. And there was also a very slim collection of letters that he had sent from the front line um, to family uh, back, back home. And so based on those two things, I tried to write him an elegy and tried to piece together what I could of his life. And that meant relying on um, Wikipedia. It meant relying on the, the Department of Defense's language. It meant relying on, you know, creative nonfiction kind of sources um, and all these kind of disparate and failing sources that were I tried to use to get me closer to who he was and what had happened to him um, and what we ha- we had done to him, basically. Um, it's the poem that, kind of like the book itself, I, I kept thinking, what's the one poem I'm going to write for him? And there's an earlier poem in the book called Depender's Immediate Family, and I thought that that was the one book that I was going to write about my uncle's um, death. But I ended up getting this residency in Provincetown at the Fine Arts Work Center where you get seven months, seven blissful months in Provincetown, in the mostly in the dead of winter where things have shut down. Um, so there's really nothing to do but write and read um, and speak with other writers and artists. That's when I kind of had the space to keep going with the elegy and actually try to talk about the, try to include within it the fact that I can't really elegize him. <laughs> Um, and tried to include within it the fact that I don't know much about him and um, the questioning of whether I have a right to write about him, whether I have a right to write any of this, really, um, since I'm writing as someone outside of an immediate kind of war experience. Um, and so how do I, but but still feeling an impulse and an impetus to do so or a responsibility to do so. Um, so I tried to, and I had the opportunity to kind of include all of that with a no longer elegy for him. And, and do you see a, a relationship, or and if you do, can you describe the relationship you feel between today's contemporary, never-ending war with the United States is engaged in and the Iran-Iraq war in the 80s? Yeah, I mean, um, not necessarily in terms of military terms of military tactic or anything, because the Iran-Iraq war was fought more like uh, World War One, more like heavy reliance on trench warfare and and stuff compared to uh, our wars today. But um, it was important for me to have a, a communication between, you know, the Iran-Iraq war and um, uh, the war today and Tolstoy. I think it's the Crimean war, I'm pretty sure, you know, and just the to have and show and make the conversation both about the specific wars and the specific lives that are being lost and naming those lives, but also the connections between these and how any state will use violence in order to cheapen the lives within it, in order to be willing to kill them, in order to defend itself, quote-unquote. And all all states in warfare rely on that kind of language um, 
And so it was important to me to have those, all those words kind of abut, you know, against each other, next to each other. Um, this specific poem, The Personal Effects, The Elegy of Your Uncle, it, it reminds me of an interesting discussion around gender that you had in, in the Paris Review um, interview. The interviewer pointed out that your book observes the long-term effects of war on less the less discussed casualties of it, particularly the effect on families, and suggested this might be because a woman was writing these poems, was re- reclaiming erased war narratives. And you agreed that the conversation did start with gender for you, that there was a relationship between the way the government misdirects its citizens away from the war and the ways we are misdirecting away from the fact that women's bodies are subject to um, invasion. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So can you um, can you talk a little bit more about the ways in which gender was the beginning of the conversation of of look? Yeah. it's funny, you know, as soon as I say beginning, I'm like, well, there are, there are other beginnings. There, there are lots of beginnings, um, but I can see it as a beginning. And I think it's, there's, there's that, which you brought up already, the, the naming of narratives that otherwise um, are, not, are not talked about um, and are not how we see or understand warfare. Um, but then there's also just the daily hypervigilance that a woman has to you know, navigate the world with, and the the daily and constant reminder of the possibility of assault um, and the possibility of invasion, um, and that that kind of uh, dailiness of violence and that kind of denial of that violence happening or even mattering. Um, were two things, two shaping things behind how I wanted to talk about warfare within this book, for sure. Yeah. And I also wanted to ask you about your use of first person in this book. You, um, mm-hmm. The first person in the poem shifts. Sometimes we presume it's you or a persona you've constructed, but other times it's a soldier or the wife of a mm-hmm. Guantanamo inmate. And mm-hmm. it, it's, it isn't always clear where we are in relationship to the voice and the point of view which made me wonder if it was playing a similar role to these these uh, definitions that are we're alerted to because they're in small caps but we're not provided with the their meanings except in the context of the poems um mm-hmm. that the eye is is troubled it's both multiple identities and and bringing them the multiple identities together but i i, I would just love to hear in your own words if if there was some project around uh, either destabilizing or com- making more complex the the I? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think of the I or the self as permeable, and I think that um, we, uh, upon upon closer and closer examination, all those various borders that we think we have around our own identity and who we are don't actually exist and certainly don't exist where we think they exist. Um, and then politically, you know, I'm just trying to keep in mind the possibility of any human being, any person playing any one of these roles, you know, um, so that it's not like there is a violence being committed and I'm thinking, how could that ever happen? Or like what kind of monster would do such a thing? You know, instead, it's like, well, almost inevitable, you know, almost inevitable that the roles that we are placed in will then tell us what violence is to commit, what violence not to commit um, and what evil we are capable of. And so it was um, important to me to to keep all of those things within conversation um, and also just occupying a position here as both an Iranian um, and an American. I'm both the the person committing and and perpetuating these uh, wars and also one who I remember in the early aughts um, speaking to a younger cousin on the phone who asked me if we are going to invade her, Hmm. you know? And I was like, well, that was the first time I had heard the question put that way. And the first time I felt totally um, kind of powerless in, in responding, you know? But um, so, yes, so, you know, there is I think for me, it's been and for those that kind of 
um, exist in displacement, it's perhaps easier to see um, how permeable and false the and polyvocal the self is. Um, but I also just think that that's a lyrical necessity yeah. that I was trying to use. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of the the Wordstock panel you were on about war and art. Um, there was an intense sort of awkward moment when someone was asking about how do we humanize the other in, in art about war. And the Marine who'd written the graphic novel um, was mm-hmm. was saying he didn't want to humanize the other. He wanted to dehumanize the other, that there were certain people that weren't human, essentially, which feels like the yeah, opposite impulse. Who, who aren't human and deserve to die. Yeah. It's, yeah. So Yeah, and... Uh, I was grateful. I was grateful that he said it honestly. That in that panel, as uh, as as much as I obviously you know disagree with what he's saying, and as horrifying as I kind of find it, but that's what's at that's what's operating. Right. That's exactly what's at work here. And my only regret was that um, my only wish was really that that statement had been made earlier in the panel um, rather than the last couple of minutes. Uh, but yeah, if your book look as a gateway for someone into the world of politically engaged poetry, where would you point them to next? Um, who, like who's on your family tree or who are some contemporaries that you'd want to highlight, um, for people to go to? Yeah. Um, well, the, we already talked about Muriel Rockheiser and Leonel Rogama and June Jordan, um, Yanis Ritsos, I mentioned Greek poet, uh, Mahmoud Darwish, Palestinian poet. Uh, oof, it's so hard. Fadi Judah, Phil Metris. I'm just going to list a whole bunch of sure. the names. Um, Ari Banyas, Brandon Som, SOM, Daniel Brzezinski, who won the National Book Award. His his book, The Performance of Becoming Human, is a really uh, difficult and bristling and kind of caustic. I, I keep wanting to call it toxic book that's really uh it's not a safe read um and i really admire it i admire its um its depiction of neoliberal violence really um and its response to it um and of course adrian rich would be on it as well Mm -hmm. and you've studied with some luminaries yourself d.a powell sharon olds yusuf kominyaka major jackson is is there any um writing vice writing advice that's um, stuck with you particularly over the years that you, like a voice on your shoulder that um, you could convey? Huh. Yeah. Um, Sharon Olds once asked me in a, the, a prompt that she gave me in her office hours was, what does it mean to write with the knowledge you were born into? Um, I find myself asking myself that question uh, over and over, especially when I get stuck. Yusuf Komanyaka, I remember also, you know, I, I brought in like a war poem and it had the word bomb in it, you know, and he's and he's basically like you cannot use a you cannot write a word a war poem with the word bomb in it. Hmm. You cannot write a war poem <laughs> with the word war in it, you know? Right. So how can you how can you kind of look at the violence in a way that it hasn't yet been seen? Hmm. Um yeah. Um and what are you are you working on a new project now or is it too early to be asking that question? I mean, I, I'm writing, um, but I also, the thing that I'm working on that I can talk about is uh, translations of an Iranian poet named Furul Farukhzad, who is a um, kind of the, the godmother of the free verse uh, movement in Iran um, in the mid-20th century, and who really deserves to be an international figure. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, maybe we can go out with, with one last poem. Um, sure. How about Mess Hall? Mess hall. Your knives tip down in the dish rack of the replica plantation home. You wash hands with soaps pressed into seahorses and scallop shells, white to match your guest towels, and like an escargot fork America, you have found the dimensions small enough to break a man, a wet rag, a bullet, a bullet like a bishop or an armless knight of the Ku Klux Klan, the silhouette through your nighttime window. A quartet plays a song you admire outside a ring of concertina wire circles around a small collapse. America 
Ignore the window and look at your lap. Even your dinner napkins are on fire. It was a real pleasure having you on Between the Covers, Solmaz. Thank you so much, David. Real gift to me. Thank you. We're talking today to Solma Sharif about her latest collection of poetry, Look, from Grey Wolf Press. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.